Good morning. Thirty-five years ago, there was a young man named Kevin Tunnell. He was uh, convicted of manslaughter and drunk driving. He was 17 years old when he was convicted, and he was found guilty of killing an 18-year-old young woman because of drunk driving. Her family sued him for a million and a half dollars, but they settled for $936 to be paid $1 a week every Friday for 18 years. 18 years because that's how old the young woman was, and Friday because that's the day she died. $1 a week, 936 weeks. Well, he missed a few payments, and so the family took him to court. When asked why he missed the payments, he said, Look, it's not the money. It's the fact that every single Friday I have to remember this, what I did. And he offered to pay the family more money, and they said, Look, it's not about the money. It's that every single Friday you remember what you did. And I think I first read that story in one of Max Licato's books. And if I'm not mistaken, Lakato asked, is 936 payments enough? Not for Tunnel to pay, but for the family to receive. At what point is, uh, is there forgiveness? I read that story and I thought, you know, about my life, and uh, I want to ask you to think about yours for a moment. This young woman died because somebody drank too much. In your life, there is a part of you that's died because somebody spoke too much, somebody neglected too much, somebody wasn't there enough. Somebody, somewhere, some point in your life has caused you great pain. Jesus said that we live in a world of sinners. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Even the Son of God did not come in and out of this world unscathed. So how much more will we, or how much less? Who was it in your life? Maybe a parent, maybe a sibling, maybe a child, maybe a boss, maybe a friend. A roommate? How do you forgive? Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. Paul's shortest letter, and by far his most personal. Philemon. Edward Gibbon, in his great uh, monumental work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, In there, he estimates that half of the population of the Roman Empire, about 60 million people, were slaves. 60 million people, half of the empire were slaves. And a slave, you could get a slave pretty cheap. Therefore, the life of a slave was cheap. And when a runaway slave was caught, the master had three, one of three legal options. 
When the slave was caught and returned to the master, the master could give the slave more work, the master could brand the slave a runaway, or the master could take the slave's life legally. And after all, slaves were cheap, could be, so why not use a runaway slave as a lesson, just get rid of a runaway and just start over with, with a new slave. The only hope that a runaway slave had was for a friend of the master to appeal to the master on behalf of the runaway slave. That's what we have in the book of Philemon. Philemon is a letter the apostle Paul wrote to a slave owner, to Philemon, on behalf of a slave that had run away and had now come back, Onesimus. And in this book, we have a wonderful, in fact, I would call the essential elements of forgiveness. Let's look at it. It begins, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a number of names listed here, and at the, the end of the letter, this brief letter, there are another list of names, but it's really three names in this letter that are essential. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus, whom we don't see until verse 10. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. Paul, a Jew, Philemon, a Greek or a Gentile, and Onesimus, a slave. And here you have sort of the essence of that great statement that Paul wrote to the Galatians when he said that in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but you are all one in Christ. And it is that unity in Christ, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, that Paul uses as the basis of appealing for forgiveness. Verse 4, he continues and says to Philemon, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. It says the hearts of the saints. If you look in your margin, it's mine says the inward parts, and that's still a very uh, tame translation. Literally, it's the bowels. The bowels of the saints have been refreshed, which sounds kind of gross. You know, how do you, how do you refresh someone's bowels? It's a figure of speech. When we, when we talk about something being gut-wrenching, we're not talking about it wrenching our guts. We're talking about it being so emotional that we can feel it. And that's the idea that Paul has here. When he says the hearts have been refreshed, it's not simply this warm feeling, but he's talking about a deep, abiding, emotional feeling that Philemon 
has refreshed the hearts. He has provided this kind of love to the body of Christ. And back up in verse 6 when he says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may be effective. If you have the New International Version, I think it says something like, um, I pray that you may be busy in sharing your faith or something like that. That, that translation sort of has the idea of evangelism. When you, when you talk about you know, sharing your faith, you think about, well, sharing your faith you know, with an unbeliever. But the context here is sharing your faith, or that is living your faith, not with an unbeliever, but with believers. Paul says that, that you, I hope that you will share your life, or this translation, New American Standard, says it well, that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. And notice how it's effective in verse 6. Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. When you have a knowledge of what is in you because of Jesus Christ, your fellowship with other people becomes more effective. Evidently, Philemon had this knowledge, and Paul was appealing to this on the basis of Onesimus. Uh, In verse 8 through 11, now Paul basically could pull out his apostle card and say, you know, by the way, I have authority to ask you to do something. But instead, he appeals to Philemon. And look how he words this. Verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So Onesimus evidently had run away from Philemon and somehow his path had crossed with Paul, who was under house arrest in Rome during this time, and Paul led Onesimus to Christ. He said, he is my child whom I I have begotten. So Paul evidently led Onesimus to faith in Christ, and he kind of uses a play on his name. The, The name Onesimus, again, if you look at your margin, it means useful. And in verse 10, and then in verse 11, he uses that kind of as a play, and he says that formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful. He is truly Onesimus, both to you and to me. I want to draw three parallels, really three principles from this letter to our lives regarding forgiveness. One is from Onesimus, one is from Philemon, and one is from Paul. And the first one from Onesimus is simply this. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our master. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our master. Interesting, in the Greek language, the word for master Kurios is also the same word for Lord. You have to look at the context to decide whether we're talking about a master in the sense of a 
of a slave owner, or if we're talking about a lord in the sense of just saying sir to somebody, or if we're talking about lord with a capital L, meaning God. And so it's a nice sort of twist, double meaning, that we have here Philemon, who is a master, who needs to be forgiven by his slave or his servant Onesimus. Um, We've all sinned like Onesimus, every one of us. We're all runaways in our heart. We may comply on the outside, but on the inside, we are rebels all. We are all runaways. We all, like sheep, have turned away, Isaiah wrote. Each of us to his own way. Just like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our master. But thankfully, like Onesimus, we also have somebody who intercedes for us. What the Apostle Paul did to Philemon is a great metaphor of what the Lord Jesus Christ, in an infinitely greater intercession and redemptive act, did for us. That he appealed to the Father on our behalf. Formerly, we were useless to God. But now we are Onesimus. We are useful because of the one who has appealed on our behalf. This faith is essential. We all have the need to be forgiven by our master. And we've all sinned. We, none of us can stand before the Lord. And if, if we were to stand before the Lord with who we really are, we have nothing to commend ourselves. We need someone to speak on our behalf. By all justice, when we stand before God, he could take our life. Just like Philemon could take Onesimus' life. But of course we know that Jesus, our great intercessor, died on the cross for us. He died in our place, took our sin on him, and anyone who places their faith in Jesus is forgiven by the Master. This is essential. When we talk about forgiveness, there is no place that you can begin talking about forgiveness, especially in the life of a Christian, if you don't talk about the forgiveness that the Christian himself or herself has. You can't begin to think about forgiving somebody else as a Christian until you realize that you yourself have a need to be forgiven by your master. You can't do it otherwise. You do not have what what it takes within you to forgive someone else until you realize that you yourself have been forgiven of the death sentence that you deserved. The whole basis of forgiving others is rooted in a correct understanding of the forgiveness that you yourself have received. And the apostle had the authority, but he appeals to Philemon on the basis of love. Look at verse verse 12. Paul writes, I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul said, I am sending him back to you. Have you noticed as you've read throughout the scriptures sort of a pattern that God does with with runaways? When Hagar ran away from Sarah, the Lord sent 
her back. When Jacob ran away from Esau, God sent him back. When Moses ran out of Egypt, God sent him back. When Elijah ran away from Galilee, God sent him back. When Onesimus ran away from Philemon, God sent him back. There's a principle there. And I don't know if you've noticed in your life, but God continues to do the same with you and with me. When there is pain, when there is something that we are dealing with on our own strength and our solution is to run away, funny how you find yourself back in that same situation wherever you go. Because wherever you are, there you are. The problem isn't necessarily just what you run away from. The problem is also in how you deal with it. So God sends you back so that you will deal with it in the strength that he provides. And that's what he did with Philemon. And that's what he challenges us to do. Face it and resolve it or it will follow you to your next set of circumstances. You can't run away from it. Now keep your place there in Philemon and turn back just a few books, if you would, to Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 4. As Dr. Toussaint has taught us a number of times, Colossians and Ephesians are sister epistles. They were written at the same time. But you know Philemon is also in there. Philemon is what you might call a little sister. She is... was. The book of Philemon was written at the same time that Ephesians and Colossians were written, out of the same inkwell, probably from the same pen of the Apostle Paul. And I don't know if you remember when we read the first few verses of Philemon, there in Philemon, the second verse, it says that it's written to Philemon and to the church in your house. So this is a personal letter to Philemon, but everybody gets to read Philemon's mail. Imagine that you get a personal letter from the Apostle Paul or from somebody who is appealing to you to do something that's right, and then that whole letter is read in front of the church. That's what Philemon was. Well, think about it. If Philemon in Colossae had that letter read to the church, it's very possible that the church of Colossae met in Philemon's house. And Philemon would not have only read Philemon, but Philemon would have read Ephesians and Colossians, because Colossians was written to the church in Colossae, where Philemon lived. Philemon would have read this letter. And in chapter 4, there are a few very pertinent passages that Philemon's heart would have leapt when he heard. And we know that he heard them. Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 7, starting at verse 7. Paul writes, As to all my affairs... Tychicus, our beloved brother and fellow servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. Okay, that's verse 9. Look back up just a few verses earlier at verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And again, remember the word master, kurios, means Lord. 
And it's cap, master is capitalized here in my verse, my verse one. It's the exact same word. In fact, they could have translated it, you too have a Lord in heaven. But it's nice that they kept it, the similar translation, so that you make that connection. Now look back at chapter 3, verse 12. Again, think Philemon. Philemon is hearing this. Chapter 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So the context here of Philemon is not just Philemon, but it's also Colossians. And the burden that the Apostle Paul is placing on Philemon's shoulders is a burden that's on each of us. That we need to forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our Master. And here's the second one. Like Philemon, we all have the need to forgive. We not only have the need to be forgiven, we all have the need to forgive. There are no two people, especially no two Christians, who ought to have any lasting bitterness between them. As Paul wrote in Colossians, whatever you have, how did he put it? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you. Some people collect stamps, some people collect antiques, and other people, it seems, collect offenses. Have you, have you ever run across somebody like that? You know, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll ask them about somebody and they say, oh, yes, back in 2004, we were at Denny's sitting across the table and this man would not shake my hand. Or, yeah, it wasn't just a few months ago, I said something to this woman, and boy, she just let me have it. I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to forget that. Or you can reach back into, I mean, years ago, and somebody can just give you a catalog list of things that, that you've done wrong, things that you've forgotten, or things that you worked through, or you thought that you did, come to find out they haven't forgotten it at all. But they've been collecting bricks to make a wall. And finally, they've walled you out. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then... To mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. So true, isn't it? I remember one time I was teaching in another church from the book of Romans, specifically that part of Romans where Paul so wonderfully and thoroughly talks about all you've got to do to have your sins forgiven is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And after the service, a young woman came up to me at the front and she said, let me get this straight. You're saying that anybody, it doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter what they've done, can be forgiven? All they've got to do is place their faith in Jesus Christ? I said, that's what, that's what the Bible says. She said, no. There are some things that just can't be forgiven. And she had her little name tag on, and I don't remember exactly what it was. I'll call her, you know, Jill. I don't remember what her name is. But I, I said, Jill, who was it in your past that deeply hurt you? She didn't answer me. But her eyes got as big as saucers, and she immediately started crying and just walked out. You see, forgiveness is hard because the debt is real. It's real. Somebody has taken from you, a part of you has died, and forgiveness feels like we've got to give them that much more now. It's hard. But I'll tell you something that's harder, and that's not forgiving. It's harder because for at least two reasons, both of which the Bible teaches. In fact, they're both in the book of Matthew. And I'll just mention them to you if you want to jot the reference down. But in Matthew 18, the very end of that chapter, Jesus tells a story. And basically, the, the, the moral of that story is that you will be tortured emotionally if you don't forgive someone else. I think we refuse to forgive because we feel that not forgiving is sort of our payback. That we feel like we are punishing that person for having punished us. So we don't forgive them. As if somehow that's going to make them hurt. And sometimes it does. But the reality is, for the most part, after time goes on, they're going to move on. They're going to receive, hopefully, the grace of God, and they're going to enjoy the forgiveness that he offers, and you're still stuck with this unforgiving heart, as if that's some kind of payback. 936 checks is never going to be enough, if that's your motivation, that somehow you're going to punish that person by not forgiving that person. The fact is, you're punishing yourself. I read someplace that 95% of all cases of depression are a result of anger toward someone else or toward self. And prolonged anger causes us to lose a vital chemical in the brain that gives joy and peace. See, it's not without good reason that, again, the sister epistle to Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians says, do not let the sun go down on your anger because you give the devil a foothold when you do that. You give the devil a foothold. And as Jesus taught in Matthew 18, your depression will stay until you forgive. The torturers will not leave you alone. But you know that truth doesn't have to be a trap. You can choose to forgive. So I said there were two things that happened. The first is emotional. The second is spiritual. And to me, this one personally is worse. It's I may have should have even mentioned them in the opposite order, first spiritual and then emotional, because spiritually, you are not in fellowship with God if you're not forgiving someone else. 
In Matthew 6, you remember the Lord's Prayer, we know that, where we pray and, and forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. So it's not just, Lord, forgive us, but forgive us as we have forgiven others. And then later on in that same chapter, Jesus makes this statement, for if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Whoa. If you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. Now, there are two levels of forgiveness. There's eternal forgiveness. That's heaven and hell. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, all your sins are paid for on the cross. We know that. So what does Jesus mean? Your, your heavenly Father won't forgive you your sins. He's talking about fellowship. This is the 1 John 1, 9 forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 forgiveness. If we confess our sins, meaning our daily relational sins with one another and with God, then he will forgive us our sins. That doesn't mean that if we don't confess, we'll go to hell. It means if we don't confess, we're not in fellowship with God. And so it's not only emotionally do we suffer, but also spiritually we suffer because you as a Christian can go your whole life out of fellowship with God if you are out of fellowship with somebody else and you don't forgive them. Like Philemon, we all have the need to forgive. So understand what you're doing. Forgiveness is not feeling. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness, I like the way um, Lou Priolo says, he says that when you grant forgiveness to somebody, you're making a promise to that person. You are promising not to bring up the offense again. One woman who had done something uh, admittedly terrible to her husband, 15 years prior to she, ma- she made the statement, she said, I know my husband has forgiven me because he tells me every week. See, when you remind somebody that you've forgiven them, what you're basically saying is you haven't. Forgiveness is a promise that you're not going to bring it up again. And it's also a promise that you're not going to dwell on it yourself. And this is the hardest part, uh, but I think it's the most important part. It means that you don't replay that offense over and over in your mind, and eventually, eventually, you don't think about it. You really can move on. You don't think about it in such a way that it causes you great grief. But one thing is hard, though, when somebody hurts you and they continue to hurt you. This is what Peter was asking Jesus in Matthew 18 when he said, Lord, how often do I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. And Jesus didn't mean 490. He means there's no end to it. In fact, Christ goes on to basically say, look, Peter, you don't just forgive uh, up to seven, seven times or 490 times, but he was asking, to what extent have you been forgiven? To that extent you forgive others. In other words, forgiveness has nothing to do with feelings. Think about the Lord. How does God forgive us? When God says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Does God really mean he won't remember? 
I mean, does an omniscient, all-knowing God suddenly have amnesia? What does he mean by remember? It means he won't act on it. It means that he will not remember it in such a way to count it against you. Jay Adams wrote, If forgiveness were merely an emotional experience, we would not know that we were forgiven. What does God do when he goes on record saying that our sins are forgiven? God makes a promise. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a promise. Boy, that's essential. If your confidence in your forgiveness before God is based on how you feel about it, (laughs) you're never going to have assurance that you're forgiven. Because there are days... I know in your life, as there are in my life, where I don't feel forgiven. In fact, quite honestly, often I feel condemned. And I know that you struggle with the same thing. Because it's not only a voice of the Holy Spirit that we listen to, but it's also the voice of Satan, the accuser, who wants to remind us of our sin. Now, the basis of our forgiveness is not our feelings. The basis of our forgiveness is what we read in this book. It's a promise. And if you ever wonder if you're forgiven, then you go to the Word and you read the Word and you base your confidence on what this book says, not on what your heart is telling you. That same is true for your relationship with other people. You don't, forgiveness is not how you feel about it. It's what you choose to do. So how do you do that? How do you forgive when you don't feel it? Well, let's keep reading. Turn back to Philemon. And a couple of verses that are so helpful to me, have been so helpful. This principle is one of the most helpful principles I think I've ever learned about forgiveness. Like Onesimus, we all have the need to be forgiven by our master. Like Philemon, we all have the need to forgive. And like Paul, we must factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, For perhaps he, meaning Onesimus, was for." For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see what he's saying? Verse 15, perhaps for this reason. Paul factored in God's sovereignty to the whole situation. We're not just talking about a runaway slave and a disgruntled master and finding a loophole around the Roman system of punishment. Paul challenges us to not just look beyond the offense, but to look above it to factor God's sovereignty. When somebody does you wrong, 
like Paul, factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. There's more going on here than simply a runaway slave. God was at work. God said, Paul said, maybe the reason that God allowed Philemon to lose Onesimus is so that when he got Onesimus back, he doesn't just have a slave, he has a brother in Christ. And what Christian is, is not going to look at that situation and go, you know what? That was a good thing. That was a good thing. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but I sure have. That there have been a number of times that things have happened that I thought, good grief, that was just wrong. That should not have happened. And yet in hindsight, I'll look back and I'll go, well, Lord, you knew exactly what you were doing the whole time. Have you had those? Sometimes it's a gift that you see in hindsight how the Lord is working. But I'll tell you what, there are going to be many things in life you're not going to see the good that comes from it until glory. So you've got to walk by faith. That the Lord is not going to waste anything in your life. Something you've gone through that you you can't look back and see any good that's come from it. By faith, you you can look above that circumstance and realize you know what, I don't have any idea how God's going to use this. But you know what, I don't have to see it to believe it. The climax of the book of Genesis is the climax of Joseph's life of maturity. You remember his story, his brother sold him into slavery and turns out, turns out that the great sovereign act of God was to bring the nation Israel down to Egypt and preserve them through a terrible famine that was coming. And Joseph made a great statement at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. He said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring about this present result. Now, we tend to camp on the present result, but don't miss what he said to his brothers. You intended this for evil, and it hurt. Let's kind of move back to the beginning of my message where I asked you, who was it in your life who's hurt you deeply? Maybe a friend, a parent, a boss, a roommate. Who was it? Who is it in your life? They meant it for evil, perhaps, but God meant it for good, for sure. You can forgive somebody a lot easier when you realize that there are bigger things going on than the pain that you're enduring. God is at work. God is at work in your life. He is allowing whatever it is that you're going through in this moment, not just to hurt you, but to develop you. And not just you, but others. You can't see it now. That's okay. God sees it. And God asks you to trust him. Well, look at verse 17, and let's read the end of this wonderful personal letter. Paul writes, If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way, I like how he says that. Of course he has. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, 
Charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own life as well. (laughs) Isn't that great? No pressure. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's neat if you read uh, in Colossians, you see many, if not most, of these identical names mentioned. So it's very clear they were written at the same time. Notice Paul says, if he owes you anything, meaning uh, maybe, maybe uh, Onesimus stole from Philemon when he ran away. If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. And here you have a great picture of the, the imputation, is the theological word, but if, of, of whatever it was that he did, charge it to Paul. And you've got that great picture in our lives as well, that whatever it is that we've done, God charged it to Christ. And there is complete forgiveness through him. And I love that Paul gives him the benefit of the doubt and says, I believe that you will do even more. I believe that you will do even more. In other words, we aren't told what that is, But many, and I tend to agree, believe that that is a suggestion of giving Onesimus his freedom. That's not just a matter of reinstating him, but free him. Corey Ten Boom, in her wonderful book called Tramp for the Lord, isn't that a great title? Has a story that uh, I want to read part of to you. You remember her situation. She was in the terrible prison camp in World War II in Robinsbrook, her and her sister Betsy. Her sister Betsy died there. And then after the war, really a miraculous, uh, a miraculous delivery for her, she went around the world as a tramp for the Lord, in her words, sharing the good news. But I'm going to read you this story that happened once while she was speaking. She writes this, I was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947, and it was there that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat and a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of her skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been, a, had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, 
hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, and again his hand went out, will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And I know I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Who is your Onesimus? Who is the one who was taken from you and run away? Who is the one that God is asking you now as they stand before you in your mind to forgive as you have been forgiven? I want to encourage you to remember, as we've seen through the text today, that forgiveness is not only the gift that you give somebody else, it is the gift you give yourself. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this simple personal book written to Philemon, this simple letter that Paul wrote in it teaching us that like Onesimus we have a need to be forgiven by our master. Like Philemon we have a need to forgive others. And that like Paul we need to factor God's sovereignty into forgiveness. These are not easy commands, Lord. We cannot do them any more than Corey could that day as she stood face to face with applying her own message. 
And now that application falls to us. Strengthen us, Father, to do what we would not do apart from the strength that that you provide. And we pray these things in Jesus' name that he might be glorified. Amen. Amen. Thank you.